Sony. Hello, Canada. Welcome to another edition of Canadian Common Sense. It is Tony here in Saskatchewan. Flying solo today, Lewis is away. He is at his busier time of the year for his business, so we do expect him back soon, but unfortunately not this week, which is a shame because we have one heck of a show for you today. Um, buckle up, Canada. You are going to love this one. All right, we are going to get right to it. So today we are going to talk about, on the show today, a little bit about vaccines, a little bit about lockdowns and rebellions, an election in Newfoundland, a budget in Saskatchewan, and the NDP and Liberal Party of Canada are holding policy conventions this weekend. All right, let's get right to it because we have got a loaded show because the policy conventions are going to take up most of them. Now, Canada, a little bit of breaking down the fourth wall here. Usually when I prepare some notes for the show, it's a page, sometimes two pages of, uh, of notes to prepare to read off. We have a four-pager today, Canada. We are going to have a great time, so... Hopefully you're settled in and you're ready to get angry because, oh boy, I am really fired up today because we have lots of good reasons to. So I'm going to start on the most positive that I can for today's show. And actually that is on the vaccine front. And only one real positive I can bring out. So... We're going to start with that, and then, well, let's just make you angry the rest of the way. Okay, so I actually have to give the federal government some credit here. I don't do that very often, but when they deserve it, we always are very quick to give them their props. So, since you and I talked last week, the federal government has actually managed to bring in 3 million more vaccines. So congratulations. Numbers as of today, 10,140,250 doses of vaccines delivered to Canada. Now, also as of today, April 7th, 2021, 6,933,900 vaccines have now been administered by the provinces and territories. So that's an increase of 1.3 million over last week. So the provinces are rolling them out. Um, to date, 16.307% of Canadians have had at least one shot. Now, unfortunately, the number of Canadians fully vaccinated, meaning having both their shots in the cases of Pfizer or Moderna, I'll get to AstraZeneca in a minute. Oh, will I get to AstraZeneca? Um so at any rate, the number of Canadians that have had two shots, fully vaccinated Canadians, still sits at 1.9% of our population. Yeah, let that one sink in. Only 1.9% of our population is fully vaccinated. And now the third wave and you you've heard the words over and over again variants of concern third wave is upon us and 
the cries are coming out from from public health officials and i actually agree with them on this point is that our frontline workers are the ones who need to get the shots now our essential workers are the ones who need to get those shots now they need to be prioritized because they're the ones who are most public facing especially healthcare workers and they have been prioritized and of course now health public health officials are saying well, how about the factory workers? How about the Amazon warehouse employees? How about the grocery store workers, the delivery personnel, the Uber drivers? And I'm not opposed to any of that. Obviously, I'm to me, the healthcare workers should be the number one priority or number two priority, I guess, because our seniors still need to be the number one priority. But our seniors are actually getting the shot. The... A lot of provinces are booking by age range, and that age range is getting lower and lower. So our seniors who want the shots are are getting them now. So now we need to get to our frontline workers who want the shots. And we discussed on a previous show that there's a significant number of frontline workers who are saying no thank you to that shot. So what do they know that we don't? Well... One thing that we do know, and here's where we get to talk about our friends at AstraZeneca, is the Health Canada still does not recommend the AstraZeneca vaccine for Canadians under 55. Now, we know from Europe that there was not a lot of testing data done for patients over the age of 65, but Health Canada said, no, we're good with it. Let's uh, go right ahead and administer the shot to Canadians over 65. Even though we don't have a lot of data, we're still comfortable just going ahead and doing it. So we'll use Canada's seniors as guinea pigs. I got nothing. We're using our seniors as guinea pigs. Fantastic, Health Canada. That's good to see that you care. So they have the reason they have stopped uh, currently paused, I guess they say, utilizing the AstraZeneca vaccine for Canadians under 55 is that the blood clotting issue is still showing up in people under 55, predominantly women under 55, are certainly seeing more of the blood clotting issues than males under 55. But regardless, Probably good that they put a pause on it. So you heard me mocking my left-wing friends over the past couple of weeks saying that, hey, even one case of blood clots is too many. We need to stop this vaccine. So do I say they listened to me? Or do I just say that they're being their typical loony selves? Either way. The AstraZeneca vaccine is currently not being administered to Canadians under 55. And I'm okay with that. But you also know my stand on the vaccines. I am putting myself at the very back of the line. I will get the shot when I have to. And I hope that by the time that happens, I will be able to take a vaccine that was made right here in Canada by Vito Intervac, perhaps, or by the National Research Council, or perhaps by Providence, Precision Labs, perhaps. I'd rather have one of those. I'd rather have a vaccine made in Canada. I just feel like I would trust it a little more. But 
I don't see a point in getting a vaccine for a virus that has a 99.9% recovery rate. Who knows? A lot of you and I may already have had it, not even known it, and already built up the antibodies to it. But there's no way to test for that unless we get the serological test and nobody talks about them anymore. Okay, so here's what I find amusing and frustrating about the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, the numbers of the vaccine coming in, remember we got um, a fair number of doses from the Serum Institute of India. I believe they were going to give us 2 million. I do not believe we got all those 2 million. However, uh, India has now got some export restrictions going on, but we have 1.5 million AstraZeneca doses coming from the United States. Tony, you told us that last week. I did. I did. And um, Anita Anand told all of us last week that these doses were coming. And she said on Power and Politics, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't want to quote her directly from a week ago or I guess about 11 days ago when she was on Power Play. Um, about 11 days ago, she said, the vaccines are being loaded on trucks as we speak and are on their way to Canada. Now, those of you who watch Power Play might remember her saying words to those effect. Well, fast forward a week and she was on Power Play with Evan Solomon, um, or maybe even question period. Yeah, we believe it was question period. So on the weekend on Sunday. So three days ago, she said, <laughs> and this time I can quote because I remember it very well. She said, the AstraZeneca vaccines are being loaded on trucks as we speak in the United States and are on their way to Canada. And I thought, wait, what? And I had to look, make sure I was still listening to the current episode of Question Period. And I was. So 11 days ago, our vaccines were getting loaded on trucks and were on their way. And there we are eight days after she said that. And she still says they are being loaded on trucks and are on their way. So me in all my generosity, I am actually going to do Anita Anand a big favor here. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt that she knows absolutely nothing about the trucking industry or she just thinks that we're all a bunch of idiots here in Canada. Most likely the latter. However, Miss Anand, you absolute dunce. The AstraZeneca vaccine is produced in Westchester, Ohio. Ohio, for the geographically challenged, which probably is Miss Anand because you, Canada, already know this, Ohio is right across the border from Ontario. So either she thinks that you will all believe that it's going to take well over a week to load vaccines onto a truck and get them a couple hundred miles across the border into Ontario, or she thinks you're dumb enough to believe that it's going to take two weeks to load up a couple of trucks with vaccine shipments. Miss Anand, this is for you from 
some dumb truck driver out in Saskatchewan who just happens to have been in the freight business for 25 years, let me give you a little inside baseball. When someone tells you your shipment is being loaded on a truck as we speak, that is almost always a big line of El Toro Pupu. That's right, BS. And believe me, I'm, I've, I've dealt with the odd dispatcher and salesperson in 25 years in the freight business. And that is one of the favorite lies they like to tell customers because it placates customers. Oh, yes, your shipment is being loaded as we speak. And then once they hang up the phone, they start yelling to try to get a truck under that freight so that they can fulfill the, the, the promise they just made. So either, Miss Anand, our vaccines are not yet loaded on trucks and on their way, or our vaccines perhaps are just not coming quite yet, and you don't want to tell us that because it's from our best friends in the United States, or you just haven't figured out the art of lying to Canadians effectively. Now, you're in federal politics, so I can't believe that that one is the case. But allow me to help you out. Perhaps next week, if our AstraZeneca shipments are still not arrived in Canada from the United States, perhaps you can go with a line such as, well, our truck has broken down. Or you could say, our driver is out of hours. Or you could even say delayed at customs. That, that, that's another line that, that gets used a lot. So if I hear any of those from you next week, then I will know for sure you are lying about the AstraZeneca vaccine. But by all means, take your time with it because apparently we're not giving that vaccine to a vast majority of Canadians anyway. But... I really just have to question this woman's intelligence because you and I, Canada, we know that a trip from Ohio to Ontario doesn't take 11 days. We know because we're not a bunch of colossal dunces that any of us could go from Westchester, Ohio to Toronto in a few hours. But no, no, let's believe that 11 days later, these shipments are still being loaded onto trucks. I'm guessing that means they are going one vial at a time from being loaded by a single person, perhaps, who only works part-time. I mean, I, I don't know the answers to that. But it's a good thing we've got a suite of vaccines in Canada. We do, because really, so far, we have Pfizer and Moderna. And really, mostly Pfizer, because Moderna continues to under-deliver the vaccines. And they continue to say, we are going to make up the backlogs, but they don't make up the backlogs. They keep having shortages, production delays. Johnson & Johnson, production delays. We haven't actually seen Johnson & Johnson yet, 
but eventually it will. So our suite of vaccines is really only two. You could say three with AstraZeneca, but really our suite of vaccines is Pfizer and some Moderna and some AstraZeneca when they get here because maybe they're on a truck or maybe they're being loaded as we speak. <laughs> oh, Mr. Nand, don't ever change. Okay, I'm going to quickly touch on the election in Newfoundland. Results were finally announced this week. And in what was the longest and certainly the strangest campaign in Canadian provincial election history, the Newfoundland election, just as a quick reminder, in February, the uh, the weekend of voting, February 13th, there was a surge in COVID cases in Newfoundland and Labrador. So the election was suspended and then immediately changed to a mail-in only ballot. Well, as a result of that, I'm assuming, uh, especially the mail-in part, the Newfoundland election featured 48% voter turnout. So those 48% of voters who turned out elected 22 liberal MLAs, 13 progressive conservatives, two NDPs, and three independents. Congratulations. I'm all for independents. So that means a very slim majority for Dr. Fury's, Andrew Fury's, Liberal government. Now, the PC and the NDP leaders both lost their seats. And so Dr. Fury has a very slim two seat majority in the House. And he told Vashi Capellos on Power of Politics, he was very comfortable. He said, This is a, he's very, you know, he's very comfortable and confident that he has a solid majority mandate from the, the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, even though. Less than half of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians voted in the election. And of those less than half, they only got 22 MLAs elected. But he's confident he's got a strong majority mandate for the next four years. And it's funny, he actually was questioned by Vashi Capellos on, on why he decided to pull the trigger when he did in January. Considering that in August, and we covered this on this show, he was saying he was in no hurry at that time to hold an election. But I guess he saw the success that John Horgan had in British Columbia, Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, and thought perhaps he'd best capitalize on a pandemic election and boost his, his minority government to a majority as well. So he did, I guess. Congratulations. So that's where we sit in Newfoundland. You've got a very slim majority liberal government who believes that with a 48% voter turnout, he's got a solid mandate for the next four years. Well, enjoy. All right, I'll very quickly bat this one down. There was a budget delivered in Saskatchewan yesterday. I will just sum up. There is a going to be a $2.6 billion deficit in the Saskatchewan budget. Now, in the uh, provincial election campaign this past October, so six months ago, the 
currently governing the Saskatchewan party, campaigned on a promise to balance the budget in 2024. Now, they were already spending lots of money in the middle of the pandemic, because obviously it was, this was October. So you'd think they would have the budget projections, revenue projections, etc., fairly solid only six months ago, but apparently not, because shortly after that election, already they started saying, well, we may have to, quote, move the goalposts on a return to balance, end quote. And they did. They have now suggested, no, well, we, I know we said we would balance the budget in 2024, but that was just to get us elected. We're actually going to do it in uh, 26 or 27, you know, somewhere down the road. We'll kick the can down the road for the next guy to take care of. And this is becoming a very common theme with our provinces. Uh, you heard me talk about Ontario and Quebec's very large deficits last week. And I think politicians are cowards um, nowadays. And I hate to say it, but that's the only way I can describe them. They're a bunch of bloody cowards. They continue to kick the can down the road because they're afraid to say no to anybody. They're afraid to make tough decisions. They're afraid to look at the government finances the way you and I would look at our finances in our household. And they just want to be liked. Well, you know what? How about be respected instead of wanting to be liked? Because I would have a lot of respect for a politician who said, you know what? We can't actually give everybody everything they want. We actually have to trim some spending so we can get our, our, our finances under control. And there's even precedent set for it. Modern era precedents that we can look at and say, it worked. And it was a liberal government under Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin as finance minister who cut the hell out of Canada's finances in the mid-1990s to balance the budget and actually paid down about $100 billion in debt. And they were re-elected. And... I mean, did they do it right? Well, maybe not because they did download a lot of services to provinces and cities, but they actually took the bold move to get our national finances under control and Canadians rewarded them by re-electing them in 1997 and again in 2000. So go ahead and tell me how unpopular it would be to balance the books. It's okay. Give it a try, Mr. Ford. Give it a try, Mr. Moe, Mr. Legault. It's okay. You can do it. All right. Now, let's get to the fun part of the show. All right. So, we've got two policy conventions coming up this weekend. One is with the Liberal Party of Canada. Another convention is with the New Democratic Party of Canada. Now, the Progressive, or Progressive Conservatives, the Conservative Party of Canada had their policy convention last weekend. And we touched on that a little bit last week. Uh, we heard you know, the aftermath and some of the silliness that went on there. But you want to hear some silliness. I have picked out a few from each of our two 
radical leftist parties in, in parliament. And yes, I know the Greens are another radical leftist party in parliament, but I don't consider them to be terribly significant with their three MPs. So let us first talk about our friends in the Liberal Party of Canada, because they had some very interesting policy proposals, and I've actually quoted some directly here for you, and some I'll just touch on, but let me promise you, all of them are gold. They really are gold. So let us begin with a rather simple one, and that is a universal basic income. Now, I'm really surprised that this, being a Liberal Party of Canada proposal, was actually quite a short policy proposal. Really, basically, all that it said was that the Liberal Party of Canada wishes to institute a universal basic income. That was it. They did not say what that universal basic income should be. No minimum on it. And... It was left right at that, that they would explore a universal basic income. Okay, so what does that mean in plain old Canadian English? That means they're not going to do it. I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm very okay with that because I think a universal basic income is a horrible idea. It was going to be horrible for small business. It would be horrible for big business, for that matter, because... As we've already seen with the CERB and the Canada Recovery Benefit after it, that people are currently enjoying, that people are not going back to work because people decided last summer, I'll take the summer off and make $2,000 a month for doing nothing. And they did. And they didn't go to work. And now they're still not going to work. And summer is coming again. And so is a federal election, so you know that the federal liberals are going to try to extend those benefits even longer to get them through said election that's coming up. So good luck getting a lot of those same Canadians back to work at this point. Now remember, I touched on this in a previous show, and I'll just remind you of that again, because there has not been more investigation on it that I have heard yet. But just by a simple review by auditors, it was noted that there is at least 30,000 fraudulent CERB claims or 30,000 cases of outright fraud in the CERB. And remember, there was 8 million Canadians who took advantage of the CERB. So there's a good chance there's going to be a lot more than just 30,000 cases of outright fraud. Anecdotally, you all probably know at least one person or family who defrauded the, the CERB. And there's a good chance they all know somebody too. So that one's going to be interesting. As we hear more, we will bring it to you. But that part is going to get good. So anyway, liberals apparently aren't as interested in a universal basic income as they might have you believe. But one thing they are interested in, well, they are interested in, and I had to quote this and I had to write things down verbatim because it was good. Quote, correcting inequality of wealth through taxation. 
That is a policy proposal that will be discussed this weekend virtually at the Liberal Party of Canada Policy Convention. It asks for an inheritance tax on assets over $2 million. Okay, what does that mean in English? That means that a business owner, a farmer, um, somebody who owns a sawmill, a factory, anybody with over $2 million in assets, and it doesn't take much to accumulate that much in assets, especially if you've got some industrial property in any of Canada's major cities, for example, a warehouse with some machinery, some farmland with machinery. Farm machinery is very expensive. So there would be, they propose an inheritance tax on assets over $2 million. So that's not necessarily the big billionaire corporate elites that they discuss. But anyway, that ought to bring in about no money. Next, and this is all part of the correcting the inequality of wealth through taxation, they wish to reduce the exemption on capital gains taxes progressively down to zero. So there will be zero exemptions on capital gains taxes. Well, what's that going to do to private investment in Canada? Well, if that doesn't just dry it right up, nothing will. And believe me, that will be enough to dry up investment completely when there is absolutely no prospects of return on that investment. So that was a brilliant liberal policy proposal. Let's go into the next brilliant Liberal Party of Canada policy proposal for this weekend. And you're going to love this one, Canada. Now, any of you who follow any United States politics will have heard over the past couple of years our good friend Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talk about a Green New Deal. Well, not to be outdone, Canada's Liberals have dis are, are now discussing Canada's Green New Deal. So, under Canada's new Green New Deal, be it resolved that Canada reduces our net zero emissions or reduces our emissions to net zero by 2050. Well, that's nothing new that's been talked about already. And we need to, to provide clean water, air, and healthy food, access to nature, and a sustainable environment for Canadians. Well, that all sounds great. Um, I'm all for clean water, clean air. We actually have pretty clean air here in Canada already. Remember I talked about the great boreal forest that touches almost every province and goes through every territory in Canada that actually cleans up the air for us a lot, absorbing 11 times the carbon emissions that Canada emits? Yeah, that boreal forest, that air purifier, that natural air purifier. But I digress. It sounds great. I want Canadians all to have access to healthy food. But please explain to me exactly what they mean by access to nature. Does that just simply mean a park nearby when they live in an urban environment? Because 80% of Canadians are in urban environments. Or does that mean we bulldoze old neighborhoods to make parks? thereby creating a housing shortage? I'm just asking. I mean, I live in the prairies. Access to nature is not very far out of town for me, and I wouldn't have it any other way. So why shouldn't everybody have what I have, right? A sustainable environment. 
Who defines sustainable exactly? And what would be that definition? I don't even... A sustainable environment. Does that mean one that we don't tamper with? Grass that we don't water? Do water? Don't cut? Do cut? Forests that we don't try to manage? I mean, I, I, I honestly don't know what a sustainable environment means to our friends in the Liberal Party. But, my friends, let me not pass over the absolute best part of Canada's Green New Deal. I don't know how exactly this particular segment of this policy proposal greens up our country, but you're going to love this, Canada. The, the, the Liberal Party of Canada will, and I quote, I had to write this down verbatim because it's beautiful, and it should make all of your 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 Canadian hearts swell with pride after I read this to you, that they will, quote, promote justice and equity by stopping current, preventing future, and repairing historic oppression of Indigenous peoples, communities of color, de-industrialized communities, depopulated rural communities, the poor, low-income workers, women, the elderly, unhoused, people with disabilities, and youth. Do you know what that means? I, I, I'm having a hard time with that one. I don't know exactly what they mean by justice and equity by stopping the oppression of, well, effectively, everybody in Canada. Um, indigenous peoples, that's that's an easy one. Communities of color, well, I, we, we certainly know who they are. De-industrialized communities. Isn't that what they want for a Green New Deal? Don't they want to de-industrialize? But at any rate, I don't exactly know what that means. So de-industrialized communities. Depopulated rural communities. So I guess that would be these small towns in the middle of nowhere that really had no industry and people moved out to move to the cities for, for better opportunities. Hey, been there, done that. That's, uh, that's me. I helped to depopulate the rural area that I grew up in. Um, so they going to send people back to these communities. I, I, I don't really understand how you, uh, repair historic oppression of D populized rural depopulated rural communities but anyway the poor low-income workers women the elderly the unhoused i guess that means homeless people with disabilities youth so really there's not very many canadians that aren't covered by this so i'm thinking that all of us as canadians at some point have suffered injustice because it does talk about repairing historic oppression of well youth we all were young at one time the elderly some of us are there now and in future we will be there so the government i guess as part of a green new deal is going to repair our oppression 
Again, they don't say how, but that sounds like a great part of a Green New Deal. All right, the last policy proposal I'm going to talk about for the Liberals, there are several, there are 60-some proposals that they're actually going to bring to their convention. And this one is Pharmacare. Tony, you're talking about the Liberals. That's an NDP policy. Well, as a matter of fact, it is, and it has been for years. But even our friends in the Liberals stole this idea from the NDP and have talked about it, but never done anything about it. And I'm okay with that. But yes, now they've talked about Pharmacare. And you might be reminded of another one I talked about too when there, when I said there was a little bit of sizzle, but no steak. Because all it talks about for Pharmacare is it just says that the Liberal government would increase access to medications and lower costs for Canadians. Well, uh, we had talked about on past shows that part of the spitting match with Pfizer and the government of Canada early on in the vaccine delivery front was that Canada, as in the Justin Trudeau government, was looking at regulating the, the, the pharmaceutical companies in Canada and implementing price controls, bringing down the cost of, of prescription drugs. So perhaps that's what they're talking about. But again, they did not provide a lot of details. So that tells me that that's probably a policy that they're very not very serious about. And honestly, I would be okay with that. We discussed last year on this show that Pharmacare is the plan. And even Bill Morneau, when he was finance minister, addressed this, that only about 20% of Canadians, this is pre-pandemic, by the way, about 20% of Canadians were not covered by some kind of, of prescription drug plan through their employer, through their union, etc. So we really would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we wanted to implement a nationalized pharmacare program because you would be destroying a system that has actually been working quite efficiently, it would seem, if it covers 80% of Canadians for those other 20%, many of whom would be able to take care of, exist, take advantage of, sorry, existing government programs to help them out with pharmaceuticals. But, hey, never let an opportunity to milk the taxpayer get, uh, you know, get by the Liberals. Speaking of milking the taxpayers, let's talk about our good friends and the new Democratic Party of Canada. Well, they also are having a policy convention this weekend. And you want to talk about fleecing some Canadians. Well, here's one policy proposal that I, I have to let you in on Canada. And that is that an NDP government in Canada would, quote, abolish billionaires. That's the title of one of their policy proposals. And of course, you know, I've got to talk about that. And full disclosure, I myself am only $999,997,500 away from being a billionaire. So this might apply to me. Well, never. But an NDP government would has said, and this is a preamble to the policy, Whereas, I'm quoting you again because this is gold, whereas every billionaire is a policy failure. 
Every billionaire is a policy failure. God forbid somebody succeed. Don't you dare be successful. Don't you dare pay taxes, employ Canadians, stimulate economic growth in this country. How dare you? How dare you? Because of you, be it resolved that an NDP government would tax all gross wealth over $1 billion at a level of 100%. So don't you dare be a billionaire in an NDP Canada. Aren't you glad Jagmeet Singh will never be prime minister? <laughs> oh, Let's continue on the taxation of those rotten, wealthy billionaires on their fair taxation of wealth policy, where all everyone, all the rich will pay their fair share. Oh my God. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard Jagmeet Singh say that, I would be rich. So they're going to go after these wealthy corporations by establishing a pandemic and disaster excess profit tax to be applied to increased corporate corporate profits during times of crisis. Wow, can you get any more vague than that, Mr. Singh? Of course he probably could because he's a moron. But basically it just means we're going to go after those companies who made who dared to make money. How dare you make PPE and make money off of it? Employ people, give them disposable income that they can spend on buying PPE or food. You rotten, nasty corporations, you. Right, what else does the NDP propose to to bring into policy this weekend at their convention? Oh, you're going to love this, Canada. This gets a lot better. They want to remove all statues of John A. Macdonald from all public spaces in Canada and place them in museums instead. I'm guessing to protect the feelings of Canadians. You know, poor Sir John A. Macdonald really can't get a break, can he? The poor guy can't even defend himself because as a statue, he can't move. Um, and honestly, I guess I should point out that the city of Regina has actually already done this. They've already removed a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald from a park downtown. And city council, in all their wisdom, has voted to warehouse this statue of Sir John A. for one year while they, quote, decide what to do with it. Well, I guess they're right in lockstep with what the NDP wants to do. What else would the NDP propose to do for us? Well, they have decided that they should nationalize the auto industry in Canada. Brilliant! Nationalize industry. Because that works so well in Cuba and North Korea. China, the Soviet Union did a great job of nationalizing industry. So let's nationalize the auto industry to be operated under worker and community control. And they will advocate for a shift toward fuel-efficient, environmentally sustainable cars, including electric delivery vehicles for Canada Post, electric fleet vehicles for all levels of government and all public agencies, and for mass transit. And of course, if you ask Mr. Singh, I'm guessing he will 
not talk at all about where the lithium and cobalt for the batteries for electric vehicles come from, because then you might have to talk about the eight-year-old boys who are mining cobalt in Africa, for example, the absolutely environmentally scorching strip mining that goes on to get a lot of these minerals to make these batteries, and then the completely environmentally messy disposal of spent batteries. But yeah, we don't want to talk about that. We just want to talk about the the greening up of our electric vehicles. All right, now I've saved this one for last for a reason, because even I never thought that the NDP or any party in Canada could be this dumb. But here we are. The Spadina Fort York Electoral District Association of the NDP said, hold my beer. And they brought a proposal to the table which proposes that an NDP government would phase out Canada's armed forces. Yes, you heard that right. Phase out Canada's armed forces. And all current Canadian armed forces members would then be retrained to work for the government. Because that's what every young Canadian who signed up for military service wanted to do with themselves. They all wanted to work for the government. They would be retrained to work in federal, municipal, and provincial health care, parks, social services, and other civil service roles that would be necessary. So, Jagmeet Singh and his morons in the NDP would like to leave Canada completely defenseless and to defund our police, take guns away from law-abiding citizens, and just invite any foreign army to come on in and... I guess we maybe may ask our civil servants to stand up for us. Now, of course, they point to other countries that have basically abolished their militaries, like Costa Rica and Iceland. But what they don't mention is those countries have actually signed protection agreements with other countries whose militaries agreed to help them out. And then, of course, they've also expanded powers to their police force to become a paramilitary defense force. But no, 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 not in Canada. An NDP government would phase out Canada's armed forces. All I can think when I read through these policy proposals, especially, I mean, the liberal ones are insane enough, but we know they're going to get elected anyway because of their name. But when I look at the NDP, I guess they just wanted to say, no, no, we are still way more left than you are. So let's show you how insane and how stupid we can actually be. And let's talk about abolishing billionaires, abolishing wealth, and phasing out Canada's armed forces. I got nothing else. That That is just so brilliant. I have to leave it right there, Canada. And we're at our time. And chew on that one for a while. And now bear in mind, these are all policy proposals. And 
there's a good chance that none of these really dumb ones will actually make it past the discussion stages. But I would not be surprised to see some form of Canada's Green New Deal make it through the Liberal Convention. I hope that it will not be in the form that it is proposed right now. But who knows these days? We are in a completely upside-down world now. So, Canada, thank you for joining me. I'm sure we will still have a military by the time the NDP convention is done. And I am even more sure that by the time the NDP brings some new policies forward for the next election, we are going to see exactly why these bunch of commies should never, ever, ever be even close to the reins of power in Canada. So thank you very much for joining me this week, Canada. And I hope you have a great week. And we will talk to you soon. This is Canadian Common Sense with Lewis and Tony.